Hi and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. This is the latest in a series of podcasts where I focus on a particular part of English instruction or English-related matters in detail. In this episode, I'm talking with Trevor McKenzie. Trevor is a world-renowned speaker and author and is best known for his work with inquiry-based teaching approaches. As an IB educator, inquiry is a word strategy or concept that comes up on a daily basis with students and colleagues in my own practice. Given its fundamental role within the MYP and DP, getting Trevor on to ask him questions and learn from his experience was a massive privilege. In the podcast, we discuss what is the best literary text he's ever read, taught or been taught, what does an inquiry classroom look like and sound like in Trevor's experience. Typically, what would be the ratio between need-to-know or non-negotiable skills slash knowledge and the inquiry process time-wise? How do teachers strike a balance between non-negotiable slash exam or coursework specification in English and student passion? What are the difficulties or challenges Trevor's faced with asking students to design their own assessment in the middle school setting? what Trevor thinks of statements of inquiry and real-world assessment in MYP unit planning, and finally, what Trevor thinks of the increasingly popular explicit instruction over the inquiry approach. From beginning to end, this conversation continually clarified things I'd heard about the inquiry approach and left me with plenty of considerations for how to enhance my own approach to the classroom. Thanks again to Trevor, who spoke concisely, passionately, and transparently throughout. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Okay, Trevor, nice easy one to start with. What is the best literary text that you've ever read taught or been taught yourself? Yeah, that's a hard question, Chris. <laughs> nice, nice, easy one to enter into, but uh, that's a challenging one because I, I'm an English teacher. So as you can imagine, as an English teacher myself, there are many texts that, I, um, that I've explored in my teaching. I'm a, I'm a reader myself. Um, but, you know, one that really stands out for me that I just read super fast, I could not put it down in the last few years, was uh, Seven Fallen Feathers. And uh, it's a Canadian author, uh, Tanya Talaga. Um, and she writes about the... Um, the true story of uh, seven Indigenous students who sadly have gone missing in their community. And it's about her unpacking the um, the story to come to the truth. And in doing so, it's really a, a challenging read. It, it challenges us to understand our, our role and impact as settlers on Canadian land, on Indigenous land. And goodness, it was, uh, was heart-wrenching. It was a page-turner. Um, and it really got me thinking about, you know, my role as a white settler here uh, on Canadian soil. And one of which, um, you know, it's it's a story and it's a voice that I encourage other, you know, people that to consider looking into. So um, definitely a riveting read and a very meaningful read. And, I, you know, we're going to talk about inquiry, right? But I think those are two things that you want your students to experience in the inquiry classroom. You want them to experience a sense of relevance, you know, this voraciousness in their learning. You want them to be curious. And so when you asked me that question, I kind of thought back recently to a contemporary text that had me feeling like an inquirer, if you will. So that, that's why I went to Seven Fallen Feathers, Chris. Mm, that's really yeah I, I must admit i haven't heard of it but it'll be the first thing i do 
this weekend will be to yeah order a copy and, and have a look yeah that's um i think those those kind of stories particularly if you're an ib school it, it really important you do get a lot of kind of like canadian uh, students uh, in hong kong or students who kind of have canadian passports uh, who are ethnically chinese and stuff so yeah um um so we as i just said like i'm in an ib school and Every IB school, whether you do like the middle years program or the diploma program and and, and and these things, inquiry is always a big, a big sort of like topic of conversation. But it's also difficult because it, it means different things to different people, um, certainly in my experience. So um, in in your opinion, in your very kind of, you know, reputable and esteemed opinion, um, what what does an inquiry classroom look like so if you were walking down the hall what might you expect to see through the window and 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 if you were to go into the classroom what would it sound like to you trevor you know this is such an important question chris um in part because it's actually a question that i I ask schools that i support you know whether i be or not um and and we we talk about this in the sense that as a teaching staff we co-design indicators of what the inquiry classroom looks like and sounds like and feels like when we talk about the culture of teaching and learning in our classrooms to create a little bit of a vignette if you will that we reflect on that we plan for that as coaches coordinators leaders when we walk through the schools we can kind of give some feedback or some guidance or some coaching and then as practitioners as teachers we can reflect on these indicators of what the inquiry classroom again looks like and sounds like and feels like so it creates a a common direction and almost a a common identity doesn't it when we kind of get on the same page And, and that's deeply important i know i'm kind of skirting away from the initial question, so forgive me, but it's deeply important that we're on the same page. It's deeply important that when we talk about inquiry, we're using the same language and, and there's some common ground in terms of what it looks like in our classroom, not just in terms of design and what's on our walls, but how we interact with our learners. Mm-hmm. Um, it creates rich collaboration across the staff to come together if we're on the same page. It creates feelings of confidence and competence and belonging amongst our scholars if we're on the same page. So I just really, those listeners who are engaged in in this piece of the the conversation today, it's not just asking my opinion, is it, Chris? It's the importance of, again, getting on the same page as a staff. Mm. Um, You know, things I look for when I visit schools, when when I look into classrooms, I got to say, I, I ask kids often. I ask kids about the learning and the kids will say the darndest things. So that's a that's a hallmark of a successful inquiry classroom is can your students speak clearly and confidently to these aspects of the inquiry classroom? And if they can't, then dare I say it's a bit of a facade. It's a bit of a, a teacher dominated show. So we have to let our kids into the purpose and the intent of what I'm about to share. Um, but, but I look for curiosity, Chris. I'm very interested in curiosity. And curiosity looks like and sounds like and feels like a whole bunch of different things, doesn't it? You know, we can see curiosity on the walls of our classroom. We can see wonder walls and question walls and learning walls. You know, I love to see student created evidence of curiosity and of their learning on the walls. So not just the things I've photocopied that they fill in the blanks on. It's, you know, really giving them ownership and agency over evidencing their learning. So I look for curiosity on the walls. I I listen for curiosity. As you listeners right now, I'm tapping my ear, just so you know, we listen for it. And and that comes in the form of questions, um, teachers asking guiding questions, not just about the content of our curriculum, but also about the learning and the competencies, the ACLs, the the skills of becoming a more competent and successful learner. Um, and, And questions can be awfully inviting, can't they? 
um, the questions teachers ask. That that's a hallmark of the inquiry classroom. And then I all, I I look for physically. You know, what does curiosity look like? I look for curious kids. I look for them being just engaged, like on the edge of their seat. I look for movement. I look for collaboration and physical movement in the space. At times, students are sitting in rows. At times, they're in pods. At times, they're on the carpet. At times, they're at the whiteboard. You know, I should see a, a differing physical use of the classroom space in the inquiry setting, not just one structure for the whole lesson or learning experience. Um, and that's just one one facet, Chris. Like we're just talking about curiosity, right? We're just talking about curiosity and questioning. There are a whole bunch of more other things that I look for. Um, I uh, one thing, and I just want to surface this briefly before we transition to more of your questions. One thing I look for is um the teacher's behavior in the inquiry classroom. Um, what are the mindful decisions they make to engage in their students kind of being more involved in the learning? Um how do they sit next to students? How do they sit with the students? How do they walk through the room? How are they showing interest in their students' interests? How are they showing interest in their students' learning? And then how are they making that really transparent? You know, how do we let our students know that their learning matters because that helps us become more effective and efficient teachers? So those are two, two aspects. I look for curiosity and then I really tune into, okay, what is the teacher doing here? What are their moves? What is the mindfulness, the intentionality? I often say, and this sounds like a little bit of an exaggeration, but I think it's pretty accurate, Chris. 90% of inquiry is what the teacher is thinking and the decisions they're making and the intentionality they bring to the lesson. 10% is the planner. 10% are the resources. 10% are the structures. But 90% is the heavy lifting the teacher does to share the learning response responsibility with their scholars. And it is a bit of an exaggeration, but honestly, it's because I want to provoke teachers to consider their role in the inquiry classroom and how important it is to engage in what, what we call authentic and sustained inquiry, if you will. So how does that resonate with you, Chris? I know I, I could talk on and on about that question, but any thoughts bubble up from your side? I think when, so if you transition out of the UK system or American, Canadian, Australian, Nigerian, whatever, into IB, like national system, I mean, into IB, you obviously go and do the MYP training or the DP training or, or whatever. And I think I, I've never had a conversation um, that sounds like the one that you're kind of like promoting in terms of like as a school uh, or as a department even, what 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 should this look like in, in our culture or how do we approach this consistently? And there's so many other things to cover. There's like curriculum and there's, there's, um, you know, the ATLs, there's how does this link to the DP? How does this, whatever. But I think I did a month long training at the beginning of when I started doing MYP and inquiry was definitely touched upon, but I, I, I definitely, that completely resonates with me. That idea of you almost need all the teachers singing from the same hymn sheet so that, um, you have like a consistent theory of action so that you feel confident about it. The students know where they are and you can build it together. And I think that's a really, really useful conversation to have, which, okay, schools are very busy environments, but I think if you want to be serious about inquiry, you've probably got to be having that same level of conversation that you would have about the curriculum or behavior or any of those other things that you, you see as central to, to education. So yeah, that really, 
yeah strongly resonates with me um i've as you know, a, one piece on, there that i just want to lift up chris if yeah if you don't mind i just want to lift up one piece that as as you're sharing it really resonates with me is is that inquiry is is the plate that all of those things that you just mentioned kind of are placed on um you mentioned curriculum you mentioned assessment you mentioned you know the the transition from myp to dp you mentioned even behavior like all of that resides on the plate of inquiry. And, and when we teach from an inquiry stance, we can look at all those components, all those realms of a learner's experience and begin to unpack them from an inquiry stance. Mm. Like, let's be honest, like classroom management and behavior from an inquiry perspective, it tends to be more often than not a non-issue. It's a softer space because you have more kids who are engaged. You have more kids who are curious. You have more kids who find the learning relevant. Mm -hmm. You know, curiosity, for for example, Chris, it, when we foster curiosity in the schools I support, it, we actually measure it. It's it's something that you can measure. You could survey kids. You can survey staff about curiosity. And so you can kind of get a curiosity measurement, if you will. When we see curious kids in schools long-term, we see grades improve. So no surprise there. When kids are curious, they do better in school. That, you know, all those test scores, those traditional assessments, they're affected when kids are curious. We see attendance improve. When kids are curious, they come to school more often and in a more timely manner. And when we survey curious kids, they tell us things like, well, school's interesting. It's engaging. It's fun. And what does that translate from the teacher's perspective? It means kids are well-behaved. <laughs> they're not They're not rude. They're not outlandish. They're not misbehaving. And, and that's the teacher lens, of course. So forgive me, but it's so important to see that behavior and assessment and curriculum when we look at it through the plate of inquiry, that, that analogy, or from teaching from an inquiry stance, you're right. What we begin to see is, is a culture of inquiry begins to bubble up. It's mm -hmm. it's That's just the way we roll at our school because we're all looking at this through the lens of inquiry. And that culture of inquiry kind of language, that's, that's not my own. That's decades old. Kath Murdoch's work focuses on a culture of inquiry. Ron Richard and Mark Church's work talks about cultures of thinking, which is very much aligned with this conversation. Uh, and, and that's what I'm really interested in, Chris, to be quite honest. I love the planner. I, I love a unit of inquiry. But I don't care just about your teaching practice, Chris. I care about your whole school's teaching mm. practice and your whole student's learning experience. And I want it to be something that isn't just something they experience for a few weeks or a few months, but agency is like a through line to their schooling experience across the NYP and across mm. the DP. Those sound like lofty goals, but we end up breaking them down into some really clear steps. And one clear step is what we're talking about right now, common language. If we don't have a common language, we're going to have this fraction. We're, we're a little bit over there and a little bit over there and a little bit over there. But if we have the common language, so many beautiful things happen. We we can collaborate beautifully as, as teams, grade level teams or faculties, and then our kids benefit because as they travel from specialty or classroom or setting or context, that common language aligns the learning experience. Um, so I just wanted to raise that up. You know, we were talking about those different realms of our teaching practice. Inquiry is the plate that everything is placed on. And when we begin to see it from that stance, that lens, it really begins to transform how we assess or how we view classroom mm. management or behavior or how we view the curriculum, for example. Yeah, it is a very useful analogy because I think often it can be left until the last thing to talk about. So you've done your curriculum or you've, you know, yeah, it can be something which is like, let's not forget, we need to also pursue this from an inquiry standpoint. And, and that makes a lot of sense to me that if you, if you begin with inquiry and then look at the um uh, the things that follow the you know classroom routines and 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 curriculum and stuff like that it, it it makes a lot more sense and i think you know that is the ib's 
philosophy um essentially i think the, a lot of people in the hague would agree with you on that um you mentioned kath murdoch there i think when i started teaching ib dp um myp whatever i was pointed in the direction of kath murdoch and yourself so i've watched a lot of kath murdoch uh, related videos and I, I sort of downloaded your uh two of your uh to your books as audio books uh, on audible and i listened to them and one of the things that I obviously went back and listened to them more recently ahead of the interview, but one of the things which kind of always um, resonated with me or it kind of stood out is that you, your books talk about front loading, like need to know or non-negotiable skills or knowledge kind of depends on your subject, I suppose. English, it would be both, I guess, knowledge and skills. Um, so typically, what would be the ratio between this, the, the teaching, the need to know, the non-negotiable and the controlled or the structured inquiry process time-wise? I know it's a very inelegant question, but in a, in a practical sense, how do you see the, the ratio between those two things, Trevor? Yeah, you know, it, it depends on my students, really. It depends on their prior knowledge. It depends on their ATL development that that's a key piece that we're talking about here when we talk about agency um and giving agency and choice and ownership over the learning those atls are what our students are going to flex you know as, as learning muscles as guy claxon likes to call them mm -hmm. they're going to flex these learning muscles to be more able to have that agency over learning so it really depends on my students and and those particular skills and, and, you know, it's not necessarily just front-loading information or the, the non-negotiables in terms of my, my teaching and my planning. Uh, let's backtrack a bit. It's being mindful of our non-negotiables so you can see them as being movable and malleable, you, you know? So when, when, I, when I see that my students are interested in something, I see that my curriculum, my non-negotiables can go there. Mm. So knowing your non-negotiables is really important. You know, I, an example that was raised up at a, at a speaking engagement I recently did in Cleveland, Ohio, in the United States of all places, forgive me. But we, we talked about uh, what was the slap heard around the world last year after the Oscars, mm. right? You know, the Will Smith slap. And, and my senior students, Chris, um, they couldn't not talk about it the next day. Mm. All of my seniors, they came in and, and they had to talk about it. And, you know, that wasn't in my lesson plan. I had, I had not planned for that whatsoever, but I saw the relevance and I saw the curiosity and I had it in the palm of my hand. And so what do I do with that? How do I look at that interest and that curiosity and take the curricular objectives there? Well, I know I have to write, uh, they have to write a persuasive piece. I know we can have a rich conversation around the concept of ethics or identity or even race or even gender. Like those are all concepts that, guess what? That's a non-negotiable. Um, in some regards, in some classrooms. And so when I see the high relevance, I know my non-negotiables and then I could actually connect them. I could take those non-negotiables there, which I think is a bit of a misconception for some teachers. When we talk about non-negotiables and when we talk about the must-dos and the must-knows, there, there's this misconception that I have to give that to them or I have to mm. uh, you know, directly teach it or I have to like lecture it to them. And, and that's not the case. When we know our non-negotiables, we actually see them as being agile when we know our curriculum really deeply really intimately we can begin to move it to places and and i think that's a responsibility to be quite frank chris as an inquiry practitioner or an ib practitioner you gotta spend time getting to know your curriculum mm. so that you can move it around you could see how conceptually it could take us to different places or 
we can backwards plan from our students' interests or our students' curiosity. Mm. Um, and I know that sounds a little nebulous. You know, a, a key piece of the inquiry practice is that we spark curiosity through the use of provocation. It's right there in the planner. We plan for provocation. Well, we plan provocation to be the entry point to some of those non-negotiables. So again, I'm not standing at the front lecturing at a group of students what my non-negotiables are from my curriculum. Mm. I'm trying to spark their curiosity as they entry point into some of these spaces that I know are important for their learning. I know are important for their development as learners and their skill development. So I, I think those are a key, a few key components, Chris, is that we know our curriculum deeply so we can take it to places where our students either inherently, we fell into curiosity accidentally, it just, it just happened, or we plan for it through provocation you know, through a rich entry point of curiosity, then we take the curriculum there once we see it. Mm. Um, the, are you, so I'm, I, I obviously like, I'm aware of the fact that you're quite a, like a busy sort of um, uh, quite a, yeah, irrepressible kind of uh, like public speaker and teacher and stuff like that. I'm not actually sure if you're like still in the classroom or not, Trevor, but you mentioned your students then, but whether, whether you're still teaching now or, or in the past is, was slash is every unit that you teach an inquiry-based unit and if so how do you strike a balance between you know I'm not I'm not very au fait with like the Canadian system but certainly in the UK you know you have to do certain coursework and you have to do certain exams so for example you know an unseen poetry exam you, you can't get away from the fact that you've got to do that um to what extent can you um still use inquiry when you're dealing with like state mandated aspects of the curriculum like that? Yeah, this is a really important question. So first and foremost, I am a teacher. I, I am in the classroom. So, um, you know, I teach high school English. I, I taught this afternoon, Chris, I, I taught uh, English 10 and, and English 12. And so, um, and I, I have a foot firmly planted in both realms, you know, as a practicing inquiry teacher with students, but then also obviously teaching teachers and working with schools. And um, I love doing both. So I'm half time in the classroom right now. Um, and that's a way for me to balance both realms. And I'm deeply passionate about both. Um, absolutely. In, in my curriculum, there are standardized tests. Um, there are non-negotiables. At, at times, there are even uh, mandated texts that we have to use. Mm. All of my units of study are inquiry units. It's an inquiry year. I teach from an inquiry stance. It's it's a mindset. Um, it's not choice over curriculum or choice over content. That that can come up from time to time, but it truly is a mindset and it truly is how we plan for constructivism. Like let's boil this down to its finest points, Chris. When we talk about inquiry, we're talking about constructivism. We're talking about students making meaning themselves and together and us facilitating that process. Um, and, and within the inquiry classroom, there are, there are constructivist structures, frameworks that we can implement that are student-centered in nature, but non-negotiable in content. It, it, let's be honest, it, Ron Richard's work and Mark Church's work, thinking routines, that, that's, a, that's a constructivist structure where students are engaged in sharing their thinking, making sense of their thinking, documenting and making their thinking visible and it, it helps us inform our practice as the teacher as the facilitator the structure is a, a constructivist structure the content the discussion the learning that could be standardized that could be mandated that could be top down that could be tested at the end of the year it, it doesn't matter 
because the structure itself is constructivist. So I, I think that's, again, that's a bit of a misconception that some practitioners have is that inquiry is student choice over content, mm. student choice over curriculum. No, it, it's student choice, period. And the content can be a non-negotiable, but there are other realms of which are totally negotiable and totally constructivist in nature. How we activate prior knowledge, Chris, like this is, you know, teaching college 101. You know, when we all went to teacher college, we learned how to activate prior knowledge. That's a way for us to engage our students in making meaning, identifying what they know and what they don't know, and then planning from there. Rather than the teacher coming in with the entire unit of study planned, why don't we survey first? What do our kids know? What are their mm. interests? How can I spark them with a provocation to access prior knowledge and plan learning from there? I love the planner. I love my planner. I'm, I'm a great planner. My unit design, I'm happy to share my screen and show you my plan for the next six weeks. However, my planner is a blueprint. Mm. And from the blueprint, it changes based on what my students tell me, based on what I learned from my students. The planner is a living, breathing kind of space. I know it's kind of set for the year once we plan mm. it. But that doesn't mean our teaching has to be set to the planner as like a structured, you know, chronological list of things we have to do. Mm. So I, I think that's a key piece there, Chris. Again, going back to it's a, it doesn't have to be ownership over content. There are so many different ways. You know, it could be ownership over how they demonstrate their learning. You know, how do you want to show me what you know? How do you want to show me your understanding? At times, Chris, that's a non-negotiable. You know, at times it has to be a structure or framework that students are going to be assessed on. Or at times there's freedom to have students demonstrate their learning in a more creative way. I had a student last year, uh, several students create video games and they coupled that with a piece of writing. Like, isn't that beautiful? Why did mm -hmm. they choose video games? Because they're inherently really keen on exploring these concepts of conflict and identity and independence through a video game. And they have this skill set that they're nurturing outside of school. The non-negotiable was the piece of writing that the video game was an artifact, a piece of evidence to lift up the learning and obviously create more agency over the learning experience. So what are your spaces of which you could teach from an inquiry stance the whole year, even if your content is non-negotiable, even if your assessments are non-negotiable? Going back to how I started, it is a mindset, Chris. It's not just a unit of study. It's a way that we show up and engage in learning with our students. I think you, you so mentioning the the video game sort of aspect there. I mean that's a big part of of your books when we talk about um uh asset, when you talk about assessment. Um I think this idea of um how do you want to particularly in like free inquiry like how do you want to show evidence of your learning or your kind of learning journey and stuff like that um is something which I would say that you know the vast majority of teachers haven't been trained to um properly kind of implement and and and, and try and it, it it can often be like a risky uh thing to do when you're you know your first intuition is that that you need to 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 take to take the initiative there and tell them what they are going to produce but it it can also be like the most rewarding thing particularly if it's a unit at the end of the year every teacher's had to do that before where um you know the exams are done the coursework's done we've still got four weeks let's do you know, for all intents and purposes, what is basically a free inquiry, but we might not know it as by that name. And you basically ask students to do that kind of self-directed assessment. And, and it's, who knows whether it's because of the end of the year or whether because they're not, they don't feel the pressure, they don't feel the kind of teacher glare or expectation. Often the, the product that is kind of produced at the end of that kind of 
um, you know, mini unit um, is often like the best work that they do all year. So I, I, I certainly kind of, it, it resonates with me a lot, that part of the book. But in your experience, when you've asked them to do these um, assessments, when you've kind of um, um, asked them to design their own assessment in, in middle school, um, what, what kind of challenges or difficulties have you run into either when you were starting out with inquiry uh, mindset or, or even to this day? What kind of issues the teachers, what kind of issues can teachers uh, anticipate? Yeah, well, we we have to talk about the skills, the HCLs, Chris. Like we, we can't, can't overlook those. I think um, you know, I, I learned early in my career that it's the skills that will allow students to be successful with agency over learning. Like they'll be deeply engaged because they find the learning really relevant. Mm -hmm. But undeniably, if they haven't fostered those skills, if they're not even aware of those skills, mm -hmm. if they're not clear in how the structures of which we've been utilizing as a class and how those skills are bubbling up in those structures to allow them to be successful with this end of year agency, as you're referring to, Chris, there's going to be a huge disconnect. You know, in the MYP, for example, when I think of a middle year student, cognitively, they really struggle with a few things. One thing they really struggle with is just mere organizational skills, you know, and, and self-regulation and being able to manage and control and plan and use their time productively and efficiently and positively. So that's not a fault of the student. That's cognitively, that's that's where they're at. And so when we get in, engaged in a free inquiry, as you referred to at the end of the year, because we, we're kind of scaffolding towards it, it's important that part of our scaffolding towards it is sharpening that skill that we know students at that age are going to be challenged in and challenged by. Conversely, there are many things happening cognitively that the inquiry classroom it, it can leverage. You know, at, at the middle school age, for example, our students are just craving autonomy. They're, they're craving risk-taking. And you know what happens when students don't experience safe opportunities and authentic ways to take risks at school? They end up taking risks outside of school. So how can we celebrate risk-taking and celebrate failure? This is a pointed question, but I'll ask it. Does your assessment practice support risk-taking and failure or does it penalize kids for taking risks? Mm. Think of any student who has disengaged from school, who is, you know, finding trouble outside of school. It, I would I would hanker a bet that it's because they've learned that school is not a safe place to take risks. And outside of school, they're, they're cognitively, their brain saying, take a risk, you know, jump off that thing or kick that thing or mm. throw that thing. Can we provide safe space in our schooling experiences for students to take risks? Absolutely. So you know the ATLs are so important. Risk taker, like, are we coaching that? I, I, in fact, Chris, I kid you not. Today's lesson with my scholars, we broke down seven competencies in, in my curriculum. We call them competencies, not ATLs, and we broke them down. And what I mean by we broke them down, we talked about what each one looks like and sounds like and feels like, and we created a list of indicators for each. So one is self-regulation. That's one that we have to coach and model and, and assess here in, in our curriculum. Well, what does that mean, kids? Because that's really a sophisticated skill. It, it, you just can't say, I did it, I'm done. It's it, You grow through it over time. Uh, it, it's flexed in different contexts, in different ways. It looks like and sounds like and feels like something different all the time. And so we spent time today creating indicators for each of these skills. And why did we create those indicators? So my students have a clear understanding that those skills are the things that we're going to reflect on, that I'm going to plan for in my lesson design. 
so that when they get to free inquiry at the end of the year, perhaps, or whenever it happens, maybe earlier, it's the skills that's that are going to allow them to be successful in that type of inquiry. Um, it, it's really, I just want to really drive home a point here, Chris, is that not only is it the skills that allow students to be successful with inquiry later on in the year, I'm just not merely giving them these skills. We're unpacking them. We're, we're talking about them. So it's not just what I have to teach. It's how I have to design lessons that focus on the how of learning. Yes, I have to teach certain content standards, certain no's, but I have to create lessons that flex the how, the risk-taking, the collaboration, the critical thinking, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So teachers listening, that would be a pointed question I have for you. If I were to look at your lesson design, a lesson plan for Wednesday afternoon class, what would I see in terms of the how of the experience of learning your students are going to engage in? Not just the what, but how are the ATLs actually bubbling up in your lesson? Mm -hmm. and then. How are you making the connection really transparent with your students so they know that in said lesson, it's not just what they're learning, it's how they're learning. So that, that would be a hallmark of, I, I would say, um, challenging inquiry experiences is when teachers don't scaffold the ATLs or the competencies across the year. We kick our kids into the deep end experience of free inquiry. And of course, our students are ill-prepared because they don't have the skills to be successful there. Yeah. How do you deal with those so those competencies that you you mentioned there, Trevor? Like, do they have like um, does does every year level have kind of a pre-selected seven that you unpack together? Do they change year on year? Do different students have different competencies? Like, how does your school um, handle that? Yeah, great question. So, in in our curriculum, we have what we call the core competencies. They're standardized. They're the same each and every year. Of course. Yeah, a skill such as collaboration at the year one level is going to look different at the year five level and of course the year 10 level. So again, there's a there's a sophistication to each skill that is actually tied to cognitively where our students are at and across their schooling experience. So there's almost like a vertical scope and sequence to each skill. Um, in my classroom, um, so we 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 identified indicators today. You know, my job as my students were creating those indicators were to check for, uh, you know, accuracy you know as they unpack collaboration are they right is there prior knowledge and and are their ideas actually aligned with what great collaboration is so this is the co-design of these indicators is i'm just not letting my students decide we're building these together i'm checking for accuracy mm. we, we then create posters in my class chris so of each seven of these competencies we can talk about the atls i'm familiar with the atls of course but imagine in my classroom we have a poster for each skill that my students actually create. I don't create them. My kids create these posters. They're big. They're like two feet by four feet. They're nice and big. And then we write the indicators right on the poster. So we have a poster for collaboration. We're going to build it tomorrow. We're going to artfully design it tomorrow. Maybe collaboration is like two hands being held, right? Like if you can imagine two, two hands clasped, that would be the image for collaboration. And then on that poster, we write those indicators. So at any time throughout the year, we can go up and look at the indicators for what successful collaboration looks like and sounds like and feels like. Additionally, I'm going to ask my students to either bring in a photo of themselves from home or we're going to design like a Bitmoji, a cartoon avatar of each of us. And we're going to print them off so they're nice and little, maybe three inches by three inches. And we're going to post them to competency posters that students want to focus on as their personalized competency mm. goal. So, you know, Chris, you may say, 
I really want to focus on collaboration because you've reflected on the importance of that skill being developed as your own learning journey. Not because I've told you you're not good at it. I've given you choice and agency and a deeper understanding of what rich collaborators do. You've chosen that. What do you do with your Bitmoji? You go and you post it on that poster. So now if you can imagine in my class, we've got this really great visible thinking wall of competencies, indicators, and personalized learning goals. And then guess what my job is? It's actually easier now that all of your goals are visible. Now I can call on you at any time to gather evidence of you working towards said competency. I could stop the learning. Time out. I want everyone to stop and jot down a paragraph reflecting on your competency goal and how it's bubbled up today or this week. And these paragraphs are due at the end of the lesson. That's my literacy assessment. Now that paragraph, topic sentences, all the success criteria of what a great paragraph is, it's rooted in student identity mm -hmm. and students understanding themselves better as learners. So the, the, the content of the literacy assessment, it, it's sometimes it can be about them. You know, additionally, this evidence that we're gathering over time and how I'm so mindfully able to attach the evidence to the poster and the goal, well, that's stuff I use in my reporting. You know, their reflections, I could print those off. I could ask them to, to take them home as a portfolio. Um, I could ask students questions about these goals long term and, and include those on my comments on report cards. So some of my reporting is actually tied to personalized learning goals, which is really neat, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. not dictated by me. It's facilitated by me. I presented the landscape and the depth of the learning. Now they have entry points that are really meaningful and relevant to them. Undeniably, Chris, all of those competencies are being flexed by all students. Although you've chosen a specific goal for a certain duration of time, that doesn't mean you're not a fantastic risk taker or you're not flexing critical thinking. You're just finding an entry point for ongoing, meaningful reflection in your learning. Does that make sense to you? I know I, I spilled a lot of ideas around competencies and what it looks like in my practice, but I wanted to paint a picture so teachers who are listening can actually see how they can bring this to life in their own classroom experience. Mm. No, I'm, well, I'm very lucky. We have like a very strong pastoral kind of um, approach to school. And, and this is certainly something which we're, we're given a lot of time to discuss the ATLs with students in terms of, um, you know, once a cycle, so once every seven days, uh, they also get a lot of one-to-one -one and stuff like that. And from what you're saying there, I can understand a lot of what my SLT or pastoral SLT are trying to achieve. And of course, I'm kind of going along with what the expectations are. And um, I, I love the ATLs. I really do like that aspect of the NYP and, and the DP in the sense that they're drawing from um, educational kind of uh, psychology or pedagogy or, you know, all the kind of, they're taking the greatest hits of what's out there in the academic world and they're trying to put it together for us. But I obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but I haven't done that approach before, that idea of taking ownership at the very beginning of the year, apart from this thing of, you know, identifying ATL you'd like to work with, show me what success would look like, how are we going to get there, blah, blah. But I think that approach that you just sort of told me about then is, is, you know, two, three, 10 levels up on the way that I do it. And, and it's, it's a, it's a really lovely idea. I can see how that would be brilliant in practice. Um, we, we are an IB school and, um, you've said already, Trevor, that you're kind of au fait with the NYP and stuff. And, um, I knew I learned about the NYP at the same time as I was listening to your books and there's so much crossover. There's a lot of things which the two have in common, but there are some subtle differences and there's subtle differences, which 
I've heard teachers debate about before in terms of the the viability of what the IB wants from some of their unit planning or wants from the way that we approach units. So I thought I would, I would kind of pose like two, maybe three um, things, which the NYP, um, I don't want, I don't know what verb to use here. Kind of, I wouldn't use the word enforce, maybe suggest should be at the heart of every unit. So um, one thing that we're asked to do within kind of, um, the unit plan is, is to have a statement of inquiry. So one typical statement might be uh, writers create heroic characters and carefully structured stories to express personal and cultural values. But I know that you often kind of say that it's it's good to start with a question, like a big question or, you know, a, an inquiry question. Where do you stand on that? A statement of inquiry as opposed to a uh, an inquiry question? Yeah, and I, I love this conversation, not just about, about the statement of inquiry, but like, let's talk about the IB and and I'll happily say, and I'll be very vulnerable and open, you know, I'm, I'm not saying one way is better than the other yeah. and, and I'm not attacking anything in the IB. I'm a huge IB fan, um, but these are worthy conversations for us to have, really. And so um, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of a question to guide learning. Um, and I look at the statements of inquiry as being the intent, the, the direction, where do we hope to go? I love planning for statements of inquiry. Personally, I never lead with a statement of inquiry in my practice. Mm. Personally, I never walk in on the first day of a unit of inquiry and the statements on the board. Kids will tell you, well, there goes the fun. Like now I know where <laughs> we're going, right? Like, okay, I just got to jump jump through hoops to get there. Like, and then they're just going to say, okay, give me the stuff. Like, let's get there already. Give me the stuff. Like we want to get them curious. We want to get them engaged. We want to get them questioning. So um, sometimes I would frame that statement of inquiry in a question. I know, you know, questions or inquiry questions used to be in the idea and now it's statement of inquiry. Um, but yeah, I love it. I love a, a rich question. I love a juicy question. I love an a question as an invitation to the learning. E even before that, I love provocation. I love sparking curiosity through experience, through accessing prior knowledge. And there are a variety of rich provocation. I choose the provocation, Chris, because it's tied to the statement of inquiry, mm. right? It's not an either or, it's a both and more. It's a both and more. And so teachers listening, yes, we plan our statements of inquiry. Absolutely. Again, it's that blueprint. Some of the richest, most amazing, powerful leaders of IB schools that I've worked with, coordinators at IB schools that I've worked with, they look at the planner as being a blueprint, not the Bible. And, and I want teachers to embrace that. I, I'm not your head of school, nor am I your coordinator. So I can't give you that liberated feeling over your planning. But I think that's a really important piece. Remember earlier I said 90% of inquiry teaching is, is the mindfulness. Well, that mindfulness happens in part because we're really well planned. We, mm -hmm. we, 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 we get the learning ready before the learning occurs. That being said, it's just a blueprint. And there, there are many ways to teach the unit. It's not just that we come in and I've got all this plan now. And kids have to sit and get from me. No, now I've got the plan. How am I going to create the conditions for more ownership, agency, curiosity to be kind of entry points into, into that unit of study, into that plan? So mm. uh, the, the short of it, Chris, is you won't see me posting a statement of inquiry uh, because I, I don't want students to become disengaged and find the learning irrelevant. Opposite is I want them to, to know the statement of inquiry, but it's not the entry point, if you will. Mm, provocation is such a good word to use i think it's yeah it's exactly the right word to use um and another another element of this is i must say this is 
I don't know whether the, this is like MYP official or whether it's something that's been picked up over time by um, kind of training leaders and things like that, because I certainly know some schools don't do it. But th there's there's an acronym when you're doing your training that they encourage you to use to uh, create the final assessment, which is GRASP. So like the goal, the role, the audience, the situation, the, and it's, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a nice idea and it's, it's designed to um, make sure that the assessment is as real world as possible. So they don't want you to, well, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but the sense that I get is they don't want you to write a speech for a speech's sake, or they don't want you to write an essay for an essay's sake. It's got to be, I mean, the example I've got here is, uh, you have been approached to make a speech for the UN about climate change, write a speech in which, um, and that's relatively easier to do with a rhetorical thing or a descriptive thing, a little bit harder to do if you want to write analytically. But where do you stand on that, um, Trevor? Like the idea of trying to enshrine real world situations or contexts to assessment. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan for sure. I, I love the GRASP acronym that you refer to. I, I love a structure. Like structures are great, but structures don't, don't necessarily mean complacency or mm. teacher ownership and not student ownership. Like we can have have a really clear structure or an acronym or framework and still provide opportunity for our students to have ownership within that. And so um, I love I love a clear structure. Um, and I do believe uh, relevance and context is deeply important in the inquiry setting. Um, and I, I do believe that that could mean local and then taking it global or start from global and take it local. Like that UN example, is, it's a pretty big one. <laughs> that, that's kind of this global example, to be quite honest. And and I would I would challenge us in thinking like, are our students ever going to actually present a speech to the UN? Yeah. So what is a speech that they would present? Who mm. would they present it to? Um, how could they rehearse in an authentic way? Maybe it's going home to mom, dad, guardian and, and actually rehearsing the speech there. Maybe it's, you know, it's standing up in front of a class. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, going to a partner class or maybe there's a school, a speech contest, right? Like, so there's, there's a local, but there's also a global. So where do you want to start and, and how are you going to make it contextually relevant to students? I, I think that's the important piece here when we talk about authentic assessments mm. is do students feel like it's a fulfilling experience, that it's meaningful and relevant and that it's not just this arbitrary thing the teacher's doing, right? It's, it's teacher controlled. That authenticity and that context and that relevance really matters to me. So, um, you know, in terms of if you're asking me, is this a problematic component? I don't see it as being problematic. Um, relevance and, and, and personal meaning and context really, really matter in the inquiry classroom. I actually think it provokes us as the teacher to ensure that that's the case, isn't it? It's actually a nice nudge for us to make sure that, okay, is this authentic? And if it's not, then we need to redesign it. We need to rethink it. We need to reimagine it. Authenticity matters, Chris, for sure. I think, yeah, and it, the, the local example that you give as well, or the idea of doing a local example is so important in terms of, I read something recently about the idea of like climate change and stuff like that. We're, we're kind of tasked or it's, it's our role as educators to make sure that every student feels like they're part of the democratic process. Like there's no point... Uh, there's no point in school in some ways if we're kind of delivering people into society and they feel like they have absolutely no role in their kind of community, city, country, whatever. And I think that is quite a nice first step to take. It's like rather than 
as you say, look at the United Nations or something. Why not look at something a little bit closer to home? And then, um, yeah. Um, so the, the the last question I've got for you today, Trevor, is like just just to kind of shamelessly kind of talk about myself for thirty seconds. I when I started my teacher training, it was very constructivism uh, heavy, very popular in the UK. And then as I got into my practice, there seemed to be like a new wave of what's called in the UK, like neo-traditionalism, where it was like, yeah, all this constructivism is very nice, but actually if we're more direct, if we're more didactic, if we're more kind of focused on modeling and all these things, then students learn quicker. And so I kind of fell into that way of thinking. And I think a few years ago, I found myself in a bit of a, not a crisis as such, but I started listening to like Rethinking Education podcast. And you mentioned like Guy Claxton before. I read a few of his books and particularly working in NYP schools, you feel like, you know, there must be some middle way. There must be kind of like a balance between, yes, they do need to know these non-negotiables as as we've talked about already, but also just doing it in that didactic way, just doing it in that like very, very modeled, very kind of, um, uh, I don't want to use the word rigid rigid because it's too pejorative, but hopefully you understand what I mean. Many people who are not a fan of inquiry or constructivism would argue that like to play devil, like, I'm playing devil's advocate now, but the, the if you don't sort of teach that stuff didactically and return to it through the likes of retrieval practice and other generative learning activities, um, like just that approach in general is more effective and it's more efficient than the more holistic approach that inquiry teaching seems to offer. Um, you may or may not agree with that. I'm, I'm assuming that you, you disagree with it, but what, what would be your kind of argument in, in response to those people who are um, like um, more neo-traditional as, as I mentioned before? Yeah, you know, I, I've never been in a neo-traditionalist class, so I, and I think that's important to note. Like, I, I can't talk about that landscape. Uh, I haven't sat down with a neo-traditionalist and have them paint the portrait or invite me into their class. And as I'm sure no neo-traditionalist has been in my class and, and watch what inquiry looks like and sounds like and feels like. And I think that's important that we honor both. Um, it would Not just with empathy, but, you know, like let's break down some misconceptions. You know, I, I do a lot of work with schools around the world. And, um, you know, one misconception is when we think about inquiry, we think of exploratory learning, mm. students discovering learning on their own, up to their own devices. You know, um, I, I'm a big fan of John Hattie. I'm a big fan of John Hattie's body of research. And Hattie speaks to it beautifully. Like inquiry is pretty ineffective when it's not coupled with all these other things, like mm. scaffolding, structures. You know, if we put a group of kids in front of a Chromebook, and ask them an ungoogleable question and say, okay, you have an hour to figure it out. Of course, that's going to lead to chaos and confusion and feelings of anxiety and stress. But that's not how we teach in the inquiry classroom. And so I, I, I really want us to honor what inquiry is and what inquiry isn't. Inquiry is not exploratory learning, discovery learning, student learning, you know, student-directed learning 100% of the time. It's highly sophisticated. It's highly structured. It's highly nuanced. It's highly mindful, as we've talked about throughout our conversation today. Um, so what is inquiry and what is inquiry not? That That's important, first and foremost. Secondly, you know, what is our intent of the learning? And, and that's going to shape our pedagogy for sure. Like, what do we want to get out of the learning? What, what What is the goal for our scholars? And if the goal of the intent of the learning is to get retrieval and solely retrieval, 
then sure, we can go about doing things differently. You could sit and you can get and you could retrieve and then you'll forget it in a couple of weeks. So is that the goal? Is retrieval the goal? And of course, if we're in highly standardized, over-prescriptive structures, it's easy to fall into that routine, mm. that rut of sit and get and listen, and the goal is retrieval. And many of those big assessments do just that. Those big assessments are catering to retrieval of content and not necessarily uh, skill development and conceptual understanding, mm. which takes us to, well, what, what do we want? Do we want skill development as well as content understanding? Do we want, you know, not just skill development and content understanding, but conceptual transfer and conceptual understanding? And if those are things that we want, which of course in the IB, guess what, Chris? That's what we want. Then we have to teach from a different stance. If retrieval is only it, then 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 we can do it in one way. But certainly that's not it. Now, I, I want to just raise up that we're just not talking about IB schools. Schools around the world are transforming curriculum, transforming assessment, and transforming pedagogy. And why are they doing so? It, do you think it's because I'm such a charismatic voice, Chris? <laughs> of course not. It's because it's because economies around the world are shifting, industries around the world are shifting. You know, robots can do the rope stuff for human beings, but they can't do a lot of the skills, a lot of the collaborative, the creative the curious, the problem solving, the risk taking. So why are schools, organizations, school districts, countries for that matter, reimagining curriculum and assessment and pedagogy? It's because, well, it's a different world 20 years ago than it is now. You know, I, I deeply admire the late, great Sir Ken Robinson. I think he was uh, the gasoline to the fire of this conversation. Mm. And I, I, you see it in the IB and, and it's not just solely focusing on the IB, but what are we doing to our students and what could we doing, be doing for our students? Mm. I just want to kind of pull back the conversation to the, the, the big point is, again, what is inquiry and what is it not? So before you make a judgment call on the effectiveness of inquiry, really get into an inquiry classroom or do some reading yeah. or do some talking like this, just as I would when we talk about other pedagogies. I, I mm. can't have a judgment until I get in there. And then know our intent. What do we hope to get from the learning? If it's retrieval, Great, but guess what? The idea is not just about retrieval. There's all this other beautiful stuff that we're cultivating, that we're nurturing, that we're planning for. All the things that you mentioned about the planner, Chris, that allows us to make sure that we are looking for concepts, that we are looking for agency, and that we're looking for those skills to bubble up. So I greatly appreciate that question. There's there's too much um, there's too much of a, a divisiveness across these schools of thinking you know, exploratory and discovery and explicit. And, and there's actually a beautiful common ground. You know, if you were to visit me teach in my classroom, you would see some explicit teaching. You would yeah. see a lot of explicit intentional planning and mindfulness. And you would see very little like chaos or, you know, lack of structure or lack of direction. Like everything is planned for. Everything is mindful. And so I, I, I'd like to break down or bring those two sides closer together, whether, you know, exploratory discovery on one far end of the spectrum and explicit directed teacher lecturing on the other side, there's actually a lot of beautiful stuff in the middle. And I, I bet you that other end of the spectrum, the explicit, the directed would say, oh, what Trevor is actually talking about, I do a lot of that too. Yeah. Oh, we're actually kind of closer in the same chapter than we are in different books. And so I'd, I'd appreciate us to, to honor that, not just because it's it's being human, it's being kind, it's being empathetic, but I think it's the reality. I think it's the reality that we're actually doing things a lot more similarly than we feel like we are. Mm -hmm. I think the the it goes back to what you said at, near the top of the interview where you, you talked about have those initial 
conversations happened about what inquiry looks like because i think that's a fantastic advice go and see inquiry first before you make any value judgments but also make sure you're going to a school or a department whatever where those conversations have taken place a lot of schools they sign up for the ib they sign up for myp or they sign up to that particular kind of pedagogy because well for a a number of different reasons but it doesn't necessarily mean that conversation and that kind of collaboration has actually happened in the initial um you know formative stages so there's definitely a middle way yeah i i I completely that's fantastic advice but um the the only thing that remains for me to say trevor is thank you so much for your time today and I, i was yeah riveted from minute one to 60 there it was yeah very very useful for my practice and plenty of things for me to think about so thank you so much for giving up your time today to to speak to me thank you for the honor chris thanks for the invitation and uh let's keep it going let's keep talking and learning together and um thank you for your time greatly appreciated